Good morning. How are we doing today? It's Super Bowl weekend. Big weekend for at least one of you in this room. You know who you are. Um, excited to be here with you again. If you were here with us last weekend, then you saw our new lights. If you weren't, welcome to our new lights. We're super excited about that. You'll notice that some of the LED bars, actually none of the LED bars, were working this morning, but that's because we overloaded the system. Yeah, that's what Crosswalk is about. Overload the system. No, look, if you haven't overloaded the system at your church, then you're doing something wrong. Um, and so, anyway, uh, but we want to thank a special shout out to Ty Forche, who's leading our production team, who spent until midnight trying to get it fixed. Um, he spends a lot of time and energy and effort. So thank you, Ty, for that. Um, but we're excited about the new things that we're able to do and excited to have you here today. We are at Campus Day, which means that we're in between two sermon series. We just finished our series called Lovewell, A Theology. Um, we're getting ready to start a new series next week called Uncomfortable. We're going to look at being uncomfortable in community, in love, and truth, and holiness, and all of these things. So we're looking forward to that series. And then comes Easter. It's okay. Yeah, please. Woohoo. Us, us, those of us that have grown up in the Adventist tradition need to figure out how to celebrate Easter because we're so heady in our brains, it's always like, yeah, it's interesting. Jesus rose from the dead. Wow. We can celebrate. So we're going to celebrate. We're going to have a good weekend. Uh, but for today, because it's campus day, we also have our kids in the room. So Crosswalk Kids, we want to welcome you in the room. And there is another word challenge today. So I want you to count how many times I say the word desire, okay? How many times I say the word desire, hint, I just said it twice, so you've, I got you started, so there you go. And then when you figure out what that is at the end, Tammy is going to be in the back of the room, and she'll have something for you. Um, all right, so starting off today, I was not one of those kids who knew what he wanted to do from day one. All right, I didn't grow up wanting to be an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer or those things. Actually, I did think I wanted to be a lawyer for, for a little bit of time, probably because I watched Perry Mason and Matlock with my grandmother. <laughs> Thank you. There's, there's an age range for that reference. Um, but, uh, uh, and then my brother, uh, who was so kind uh, and loved me so much as his younger sibling, uh, that he gave me a, jo a book about jokes about lawyers. And they were all awful. And I knew from an early age, even though I didn't know what I wanted to do for a career, I knew I wanted to do something for Jesus, and I read this book, and I thought, if that's what lawyers are, I can't possibly be a lawyer and love Jesus. Todd, I want you to know that's not true. You can. You can do both. But I was a kid. What did I know? So I didn't know what I, well, always know what I wanted to do, but... But as I've grown and as I've come into ministry and as I've spent 23 years in ministry, the longer I spend in ministry, the longer I listen to stories from people, the heartache, the brokenness, the anxiety, the depression, the fears that go on, all of the things of the human story, the more and more convicted I become that I am called to help people find a better image of who God is. Because I will tell you, the world seems to have a corner market on painting a picture of God that isn't God. And I would say it's not just the world and those outside the church. Sometimes those inside the church are the most to blame for painting a bad picture of who God is. And so today we're going to wrestle with that picture. I want to share a story with you that I think 
all of us at some point in our lives have either had or currently have of God in some way or another, some version of this story that we wrestle with, whether we speak about it or not. The story comes from uh, David Dark in his book, The Sacredness of Questioning Everything. It's a great book, The Sacredness of Questioning Everything. He tells the following story. He says, imagine a town, a tiny town with a tight-knit community. The people share joys and concerns, woes and gossip. They keep a close and often affectionate watch on one another's business. They talk and talk and talk. What an outsider would notice within minutes of listening in on conversations are constant and slightly self-conscious references to Uncle Ben. A beautiful sunset prompts a townsperson to say, isn't Uncle Ben awesome? Good news brings out how thankful and overjoyed they feel toward Uncle Ben. Even in tragedy, a local might say in a slightly nervous fashion, you know, it just goes to show how much we all need Uncle Ben. I know, we all know, that Uncle Ben is good. Uncle Ben is always on their minds. Even when the magnificence of Uncle Ben isn't spoken of aloud, he's somehow present in facial expressions and actions. It's the look of stopping a train of thought before it goes too far, of letting an uncompleted sentence trail off into awkward silence, of swiftly changing the subject. It's as if a conversation can only go so far. People hardly ever look one another in the eye for long. At the beginning of each week, there's a meeting in the largest house in town. Upon arriving, people get caught up in good fellowship and animated conversation of the week's events, with conversation straining in the direction of Uncle Ben. When a bell sounds, talk ceases, everyone moves to the staircase and descends into the basement. Each person sits facing an enormous, rumbling furnace. Seated close to the furnace door, as if he were a part of the furnace itself, is a giant man in black overalls. His back is turned to them. They wait in silence. In time, the man turns around. His face is angry, contorted. He fixes a threatening stare of barely contained rage on each person, then roars, am I good? To which they respond in unison, yes, Uncle Ben, you are good. Am I worthy of praise? You alone are worthy of praise. Do you love me more than anything, more than anyone? We love you and you alone, Uncle Ben. Then Uncle Ben says, you better love me or I'm going to put you in here forever. He opens the furnace door to reveal a gaping darkness. Out of the darkness can be heard sounds of anguish and lament. Then he closes the furnace door and turns his back to them. They sit in silence. I'm listening. I think it's time to go home, everyone. <laughs> and we're done. <laughs> I'm going to tell the better story. Just hold on. <laughs> I'm going to write that in my journal later. Um, they sit in silence. Finally feeling reasonably assured that Uncle Ben has finished saying what he has to say, they leave. They live their lives as best they can. They try to think and speak truthfully and do well by one another. They resume their talk of the wonders of Uncle Ben's love and anticipation of the next week's meeting, but they're limited in a myriad of ways by fear. 
Fear causes them to censor their own thoughts and words. Fear prevents them from telling anyone of their inner anguish and fright. Fear keeps them from recognizing in one another's eyes their common desperation. This fear is interwoven subtly and sometimes not so subtly in all of their relationships. End of story. For those that have grown up in the uh, Adventist faith tradition or have accepted the Adventist beliefs, especially those related to hell and state of the dead, it's easy to dismiss this story of Uncle Ben because we believe differently about hell than a lot of other Christian traditions do. But I would argue that Adventists have too often replaced the God of hell with some other picture that isn't accurate. Some other version of the story. Maybe outwardly we talk about a God of love, but inwardly we are worried that we're just not good enough to be saved, that God is only on our side if we behave and believe correctly. Maybe outwardly we come to worship, but inwardly we know we are here to try to appease God, trying to make him love us. Some of us aren't sure if God likes us at all, and we really aren't sure if God is actually good. But God can't be both love and hate, gracious and cruel, right? It seems like he either is love or he isn't, period. This is the critical point of the entire battle of good and evil. Is God good or unspeakably scary? This is the question we gather to answer because I believe with all my heart that knowing who God really is is what changes everything. For if God is really as good as we hope, if he is really love, we will freely and gladly spend our lives telling other people about this kind of love. After three and a half years of following Jesus, watching his every move, the Apostle John would come to write later in a letter what he learned about God from that time in three words. God is love. William Johnson, who was on our video last week being interviewed, says that this verse in the Bible is the most important verse in the entirety of Scripture. Love is something you have, or in God's case, it is something you are. But then there is desire. And desire is something you want and hunger for and obsess about. Desire motivates. So what does love desire? I believe answering that question will help us see God more clearly. And to figure out what love desires, we're going to wrestle with it on a human level. And then we'll wrestle with desire from a divine perspective. If you look at desire in the dictionary, the definition is the word desire means a wish, a longing, or a want. The unfortunate thing about a dictionary definition is it just leads you in circles. So if you look up a wish, it'll say a wish is a longing, a want, or a desire. A longing is a want, a wish, or desire. So it really doesn't help you. So what we're going to do is we're going to define desire operationally, which is when you have an operational definition, you take a word, you define a word by describing a situation. So for me, desire is walking into a toy store at the end of a summer and you have been working all summer to earn just enough money for the one thing that your heart wants more than anything else, a remote-controlled, turbocharged helicopter. Amen, somebody said. You have been wanting that helicopter all summer. You know exactly how much it costs. You have saved your money. You walk into that toy store, which is full of other toys, but you don't see those other toys. 
You walk into that store, you know exactly where your helicopter is, you know what aisle and what shelf, you walk, you pick it up, it is finally gonna be yours. You look at it, you walk up to the cashier, you set it down, you put on top of that box the exact change with tax included, you walk out of that toy store, the whole time you didn't see anything else but your remote-controlled, turbocharged helicopter. That is desire. Desire is when you long for something so much, it's all you can think about, it's all you can talk about, you tell your friends about it until they're sick of hearing about it. Desire is obsessing about something that much. And as we grow up, we go through different stages of wants and desires, right? When we're little, it's toys or it's trips to Disneyland and then we grow up a bit and it's getting our driver's license and then it's getting a car or being popular and then you get to a place where suddenly it's not about finding joy in a moment it's about finding something more substantial that will last longer and so for me what that first desire I remember that was really transcendent was the desire to find the woman of my dreams that's what it had moved to. And so I did what all young men who wanted to find the woman of their dreams did when they were my age in my neck of the woods at that time. I enrolled at a place called Walla Walla University. <laughs> I was told by many that it was the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honeys. <laughs> oh, goodness. I have it on good authority that Walla Walla University is second only to eHarmony.com for the number of matches uh, that is made. Of course, it is known as Walla Walla University or Western Wedding University. There is a reason why I have done 80 to 100 weddings that I've officiated at, because that's what you do when you work as a chaplain at Walla Walla University. Um, and so, unfortunately, for the first couple of years that I was at Walla Walla, I did not always take God on the journey. There was this enormous pressure, knowing it was Western Wedding University, to find the person of your dreams. In fact, I had this recurring nightmare because on the day of graduation, they actually would say the statistics of the class, and as a part of that, they would say how many in the class were single <laughs> and how many were married and how that number was going to change dramatically the day after graduation. A lot of people got married after graduation. And so I had this nightmare that was recurring that it was my graduation day, and, and they were giving the stats for the class, and they would say something like, out of the class of 400, 399 of them are married, and one of them isn't, and that's him, Patty McCoy. Loser. That was my fear. That was, that, that was my nightmare. So I didn't always take God on the journey with me, uh, which I would come to regret, but after several, let's call them teachable moments, I was ready to stop dating for dating's sake and start getting serious. So something really critical I did during this time in my life was that I surrendered my search, my desire to God. I had a, a breakup and I had things I was working through and I had time when my, my relationship with God was getting closer than it had ever been before. And during that time, as I was praying and talking and working through things with him, I felt impressed one day to write a list of like the things that I wanted out of life, but also the things that I felt would be a good match for me in a partner. And so I prayed and I wrote and I wrote and I prayed and at the end of the night I looked over this list of characteristics and traits and I thought, my goodness, this is idealistic. There's no way I could find somebody with all of these. So I'll just star some of the ones that were really important to me. Um, but then I did something that was really helpful is I just surrendered it. I said, God, you just, 
you know, your timing, your way, when things are ready. Just prepare this person to meet me and me to meet them when the time is right. And then I just let it go, trusting in God's journey and his timing for my life. It happened a few weeks after this. I was actually at a Taco Bell with friends because where else do you go when you're in college? Um, And we were sitting there, and a friend of mine said, oh, Patty, I got the perfect girl for you. I said, great, where is she? Um, They said, oh, well, she goes to this school down in in Texas. I'm like, well, that's 1,800 miles away. I did the math, and this was before all the great tools that we have today, right? So I was like, I don't want a long-distance relationship, so we just let it go. But then it so happened that this same person was going to be in southern Oregon for a wedding. Well, Southern Oregon's closer, and so my friends decided it was time to set me up on my first blind date. Now, I don't know if you've had a blind date before. Nowadays, it's kind of hard because we can stalk each other on social media. So I don't know that that counts anymore. I don't know if there's such a thing as blind dates, but this was a blind date, and, uh, and yes, I know all the jokes about, well, if she chose you, she must have been blind. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, I just saved you from having to say that after the sermon. Um, so uh, anyway, but when you have, when your friends are sending you up on a blind date, you know there's a question that is shallow and horrible, but you have to ask it. I said, well, what does she look like? Right. And because uh, the way they answer that question is really important to whether you agree to go or not, right? Um, but they, the first thing they said about her, they said, well, she's 5'11". And I said, okay, I'll go. <laughs> that was all they said. And you have to understand, for someone that is over six foot, uh, I had dated a lot of people in my previous years that were more vertically challenged. There's nothing wrong with that, but sometimes it's a little awkward. And you're like, hi, you want to go out on a date? Okay, come on, let's go. <laughs> so... This, this was a new experience for me. I was super nervous. We all drove down together to spend the day together. Um, we picked her up at the house, and when we picked her up, she was not only 5'11", she was wearing three and a half inch platform shoes. Yowza! We spent the day together. We had a great time. Over the next few months, we would write each other. We would call each other back when you had to pay for your long distance charges. I had to, yes, young people, we used to have to pay for that stuff. Um, and, and I had to take out another loan from college so I could pay for those charges. Um, and that, and a very long story, much shorter, next month we celebrate 24 years. Yes. Um, and one of the cool results are that dating a taller person, my son's 6'6", and my daughter's 6'1". It's super cool. Anyway. Um, but... Uh, before we got married, as we were packing up our things to move in together, I, was, I came across that list that I had made with God. Um, and I started to read through that list. And Trisha not only met all of those things that were starred, she met everything else too. It was like describing her perfectly. And I realized that God had answered one of the desires of my heart So we've all desired after something, whether it was something material or it was an achievement or it was a relationship, we know what it is to desire. So what is it that our creator desires? What does love desire? What is it that God longs for, obsesses about, chases after? Well, as I said, when you long for something, you talk about it often to your friends, to anyone who will listen. So what is it that God talks about often? What does God repeat 
Well, if we go through a sampling of texts from Scripture, we find this, Exodus 25, 8. Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. Leviticus 26, 11 to 12. I will live among you and I will not despise you. I will walk among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. Ezekiel 37, 27. I will make my home among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Zechariah 2.10, the Lord says, shout and rejoice, O beautiful Jerusalem, for I am coming to live among you. You will be my people. I will live among you. 2 Corinthians 6.16, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Revelation 21, 3 and 4, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Throughout his word, throughout all the stories of trials and tribulations, throughout all the sins he's endured, the truest desire of God's heart is that one day he will dwell among us again. No more separation, no more distance. He, will, he desires that we will be his people and he will be our God. We will no longer choose sin, for God will be our one and only. Our love will be his, undivided. Uh, no longer divided between the spirit and the flesh, our lives will truly be in his hands. We will walk together face to face in the cool of the day as we did in the beginning. I have often said if the Bible were written, as a best-selling novel, it would be called The Chase because I believe it tells the story of a God chasing after his creation. Even though they've rebelled after him time and time and time again, he goes in search. In fact, in Francis Thompson's poem called Hound of Heaven, he says, I hide and evade, but God is the one who seeks, unhurrying, unperturbed, refusing to stop. He is the hound of heaven. He chases after us because of his longing, his persistent and passionate desire to be with us. And then, the following verse in Revelation 21 paints one of the most tender, beautiful scenes in all of Scripture. A scene my heart longs for as well, especially in the face of great tragedy like the earthquake in Syria and Turkey, the wars like in Ukraine, the mass shootings, and so much more. It's a day when he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. It's important to note that this is not just what we want. This is what God wants. This is what God has always wanted, to interact with us, to touch us, to hold us. And that, my friends, is paradise to me and to God Oh, to God, it is what drives his every action. 2 Peter 3, 9 says that God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all of us to be with him in heaven. And this desire is what motivates his every action. It's what causes him to take us back even after we've sinned time and time and time again. It is what causes him to leave the 99 in search of the one that is lost. It is what causes him to run after the prodigal son even though he's long ways off in the distance. It is what pushes him to speak tenderly to us even after we cursed him because we don't understand this world and we don't understand death and we just want to go home. It is what made him give his only dear and precious son, Jesus, to step out into the darkness of this world and to be made a no one, 
the son of a carpenter, in hopes that he might save everyone who believed in him in God's great love. We are God's children, and there is no doubt in Scripture that he wants all of us to come home. It was the thought of being with each one of us again that held Jesus to that cross. I'm always blown away by that scene when they yell and mock at him and they tell him, if you're who you say you are, come down off the cross. Jesus could have done that. But he stayed there, enduring the cross, scorning its shame for the joy set before him, and we are that joy. The thought of holding us tight, staring in our eyes, and spending the rest of forever saying to each one of us, I love you, I have always loved you, and I am so glad you're home. That is God's desire. You are what love desires. The song by the group Third Day says it well. I would sing it for you, but then you would leave. So I'll just read. I've heard a tale that a man would climb a mountain just to be with the one he loves. How many times has he broken that promise? It has never been done. Well, I never climbed the highest mountain, but I walked the hill of Calvary. I've heard it said that a man would swim an ocean just to be with the one that he loves, but all of those dreams are an empty emotion. It can never be done. Well, I never swam the deepest ocean, but I walked upon the raging sea. And I know that you don't understand the fullness of my love, how I died upon the cross for your sin. And I know that you don't realize how much that I give you, but I promise I would do it all again. Just to be with you, I've done everything. There's no price I did not pay. Just to be with you, I gave everything. I gave my life away just to be with you. Just to be with you. And finally, here's the greatest thing about Revelation 21. No matter where you start reading in Scripture, whether you're in the Garden of Eden or you're in slavery in Egypt or you're on the battlefield or you're on a hill called Calvary, Revelation 21 is the end of the story. And wherever you are in life today, whether you're feeling overwhelmed, depressed, anxious, suffering loss, struggling with work, finances, a diagnosis, whatever it is, Revelation can be the end of your story as well. When you receive God's love, when you believe that he actually is good, that he actually is love, Revelation is the end of our story, which really is just the beginning of the lives that we were meant to live, hand in hand with God, our Savior, and the all-sustaining presence of the Holy Spirit. loving Heavenly Father forgive us for the times in which we have believed a picture of you that isn't true a picture of you that paints you as a mean and vindictive God out to get us help us as we replace that with the truth that you are a God that loved us so much that you gave us your one and only son. And whoever believes in him accepts that gift, would not perish, but would have everlasting life. For you did not send your son into this world to condemn the world, but to save it. Help us to receive that love, believe in that love, and go from this place and be that love to a world 
that desperately needs it. You're precious and holy and powerful and beautiful and resurrected. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray these things.